friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll find us under Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today on Conversations with Consequences, we are back at that never-ending topic, coronavirus and our national response. Here where I live in Miami, things are calming down and hospital admission rates are declining, which is great news. And other places in the country, we're seeing surges and concomitant severe lockdowns. In some parts of California, most churches are still closed and limited to a 12-person limit even for an outdoor mass. We'll be talking to Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione about this. He's from San Francisco, and he's been finding creative ways to keep bringing the mass to the members of his archdiocese. Before that, we'll be talking to Dr. Timothy Flanagan. He's an infectious disease expert at Brown University who's been with us before and always is very illuminating. He's going to talk to us about some really great news on how effective the mask guidelines have been at keeping parishioners safe. And welcome back to the show, Doctor. Uh, Dr. Gracie, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. Well, you've been so helpful because, like all Americans, we've been experiencing this this horrible twist and turn in our lives, which is the pandemic and then the lockdowns, and then trying to get back to a semblance of normal life and to retake back all the things that the lockdown took away from us and, and the epidemic, of course. Before we get to that, tell us how things are going in your neck of the woods. Well, I'll start as an infectious disease doctor. And actually things are, we're doing pretty, pretty well. You know, we still do have patients that are infected in our region that are newly diagnosed. We know that most individuals that are infected will do very well, but we have a small number at each of our hospitals coming in, uh, maybe one or two a day. We're treating them and fortunately our treatments are much better. So we are using the new antiviral medication remdesivir. We are also using higher doses of steroids among individuals that are ill and it appears to halt the progression of the disease, which is very, very encouraging. I'm curious, are treatments for patients when they first present before they get to the stage of hospitalization, are those treatments also improving? Are people, are doctors experiencing better results at keeping people out of the hospital? Great question. The short answer is our treatments have not changed for those patients. So patients that have the flu-like illness, which could be a fever, muscle aches and pains, joint pains, really severe fatigue and headaches. For those individuals, we're still recommending staying at home lots of fluids, taking Tylenol, and often Tylenol around the clock helps a lot, and good supportive care. So our treatments have not advanced a lot in that regard, but by far and away, the vast majority of those patients will do well. Mm -hmm. And it's really when patients become short of breath that they really need more advanced medical care. Now, it's hard for patients to know that, but when you go to the emergency room, there's a lot of focus on that. What's your chest x-ray look like? Sometimes we'll do a chest CT. How's your oxygenation? Is that strong or is it not? And when there are signs that it's worrisome, then those folks get admitted. And your question is a good one because our treatment has advanced significantly among patients that are hospitalized. But among patients that are not hospitalized, 
it's the same supportive care we were doing a few months ago, which usually works. Oh, you may not know this, but I'm a outpatient radiologist, so I see mm-hmm. a lot of people who aren't sick enough to go to the hospital. And what I've been seeing, which has been very interesting to me, are chest CTs on patients that are almost entirely asymptomatic, and sometimes the chest CTs are being performed for entirely different reasons, other healthcare concerns. But they have pretty florid disease in the chest. Does that sound like something you've been seeing up in Rhode Island? It does. And we saw this particularly, interestingly enough, in children that were doing, or younger people that were doing very, very, very well. But they happened to get a CAT scan and it shows an infiltrate, which is typical for the SARS-CoV-2 virus or a COVID infection. And what we're seeing is that younger folks or folks that are very healthy often tolerate a viral pneumonia very, very well. So they They have no trouble oxygenating, they're not short of breath, and they're able to stay at home and do well and recover on their own, which really means recovering with their immune system kicking in. And that's what really fights the virus so effectively. And very interesting to me as a radiologist because it's a very typical uh, pneumonia pattern and it's very different from anything else that I see in an ambulatory population. It's it's a heavy Mm. multifocal pneumonia, which you would swear as a radiologist, the person should be very sick and and they're not. So I'm I'm wondering how many of us are walking around with pretty heavy chests (laughs) and have no idea. Uh You know, it's a really, really good question. As you say, sometimes we find it when we're getting chest CTs or CAT scans for other reasons. I often recommend my patients and others that I know through my social circles who develop the disease, but it's not severe. So they develop, I just got a call this morning from the mother of a young man who tested positive in college, um, but was doing very well. And I said, well, if that person were to become sick with a fever and felt like he had a flu-like illness, it would be important to have a pulse oximeter at home to be able to check how his oxygen levels are. And if your oxygen levels are really good, then you feel confident being able to stay home with supportive care. That's assuming you're not short of breath or not in a lot of distress. But mm-hmm. if your oxygenations are at all poor, then that's an indicator of you know going to the hospital. It gets at just what you're saying is we can see it on the x-ray and some people do very, very well with it. And then others, of course, get sicker. Well, this all goes to the fact that COVID is a very strange disease in many ways. It's it's challenging us as a society, as, as a world society, really, on how do we deal with the disease in such a way we keep the we flatten the curves, we don't overload the hospital system, we keep people safe as much as we can, and at the same time we go out to meet life and keep living. And I think that all of us are engaged in this very difficult balance between all the different needs that we have on the one hand to stay healthy physically, and then on the other hand, all the other needs, such as education, and something that is very important to, to you and I and to many of our listeners, which is our the, the religious needs that we have to, to worship in community. You are so right. Now, the good news is that the three things that we can do to help prevent spread, we call it the three W's. So watch your distance. That means, you know, keeping a little bit away. You don't go up and put your arm around somebody the way we used to, even though we want to give them encouragement. The second is wear your mask. And the third is wash your hands. The good news is we're finding when you follow those three things, it actually works and it decreases transmission dramatically. So how do we know this? We know it because when you become sick with COVID pneumonia or COVID illness from this pandemic and this virus, the day or two before you are actually infectious and can transmit the virus. So for example, there was a hair salonist 
who was cutting hair and so forth, washing. That meant very close uh, to their customers. And she came down with coronavirus. And so they thought, oh my goodness, what about the people you took care of the day before, the day before that? They contacted all of those folks and there was no outbreak of illness among them. Now that hair salonist wore a mask, practice good hand hygiene. And that means that that standard practice really works and decreases transmission. It's a very, very big thing. Now you asked, how are things going for me? The other hat I wear is, of course, is I'm a deacon, a permanent deacon up in our parishes here at St. Teresa and St. Christopher, which I really love. And I'm so happy to see people coming back to Mass Mm -hmm. and receiving communion and going to confession with our priests after Mass, spending the time to do that. And we're all doing it a little differently. Confession is now in a much bigger room and the chairs are a little further apart but the absolution is exactly the same and communion wearing masks doing good hand hygiene and then making sure people can receive our lord in the eucharist and we've not seen any outbreaks and we've there have been plenty of opportunities there have been over a million masses celebrated we believe in all the dioceses and parishes around the country and there have been no outbreaks associated with mass and receiving the Eucharist. So, wow, that's such good news. Dr. Flanagan, when this all first happened and everyone had to shut, all the churches were shut down and we were all watching masses online, which are not satisfying, I have to say. (laughs) When all this happened and then we were finally able to start opening up, every parish didn't have to invent how to open up safely. There were protocols that were available to all our parishes from the Thomistic Institute. You were involved in this. Tell us about how that happened. So, it became became clear that there are good public health principles about decreasing spread of the virus, but how you adapt them to mass and to the sacraments is critical. And there are many people that were saying no sacraments, no mass, hmm. because this is risky. And it created a condition of paralysis and fear. Yes. And so we, a number of us public health minded and experienced physicians were closely with the Dominican Thomistic Institute and the Catholic Medical Association did the same and produced very helpful guidelines. And we said, okay, let's talk about each different activity that goes on with the sacraments. And of course, as Catholics, we know the sacraments are gritty. They're human. They're involved with real things. It's the real bread and the real wine turned into the real body and the real blood of Jesus. It's not just ideas, real Mm -hmm. things. Baptism, we pour water on the head of that child or person being baptized. And confirmation, the oils are are applied on the forehead. We as Catholics and in our sacraments, these are real things. And of course, represents because Jesus is real. It was very important to have an understanding of the sacraments and an understanding of how to decrease the possible transmission of the virus. So it's just applying those two together and thinking about it out loud, out loud, always referring back to our CDC guidance, which has been so helpful, and saying, okay, what do we know about the biology of transmission? And there were some little things that were very particular, and I'll, I'll give an example. It turns out that if a person is infectious and they're singing in a choir, there's a large chance that you could transmit the virus to other members of the choir. And so from a practical point of view, it really meant we're going to have to hold off, tell our choirs that we're going to have to have them sit this out until we get a vaccine. 
but it is safe for us to receive communion. And that was a big thing. Many people were like, oh, no, 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 no. And the answer is yes, it can be done. And we now have the experience to show that it can be done safely. Well, thank God, because those were long, dry times when our sacraments, when we were denied the sacraments for so long. I mean, one understood the necessity, and at the same time, it was very difficult, especially people who go to Mass every day. And the Mass is an integral part of their lives, and every single day, it's the way we start, especially the Eucharist. So then you recently authored a paper that I read on Real Clear Science, I think it is, and where you looked at the actual results of the application of these methods of having mass safely. And what were the results? So uh, we were able to look uh, through the literature and through the experience. And there, as we all know, there have been outbreaks of viral transmission associated with gatherings, uh, weddings, funerals, parties, and other church services. And then we said, okay, this is a possibility. Now, let's take a look and scour the reports and see if there are any episodes that have occurred with Catholic Mass where it's being celebrated in dioceses that have encouraged and strongly encouraged the application of the guidelines. And it was very encouraging. We found none. Now, think about it. I can tell you in Rhode Island, when Catholic Mass opened with the encouragement of the bishop following the guidelines, the other churches did not. So by far and away, the majority of Christian services have been Catholic Masses around the country. And so the numbers are enormous. And so it's so encouraging that there have not been reports. The second thing we did is we asked our peers, are guidelines, do they appear to be followed appropriately? Now, this is done anecdotally, which means we, we did not do a formal survey, and we hope to do this in the future through working with the Catholic Medical Association. Does it appear the guidelines are being followed appropriately? But what we saw anecdotally was very encouraging, that yes, our priests and our uh, services. Everyone is worried. Everyone does. Everyone wants to make sure that we can continue to celebrate Mass, and so therefore there has been good adherence to the guidelines. And then, lastly, largely through some very excellent work done in the Archdiocese in Seattle, um, there were a number of cases where someone on a Monday, after having been to Mass on a Sunday, on Sunday they felt fine, they went to Mass, but on Monday they became ill. They didn't get infected at the Mass. They got infected elsewhere. But Monday they got sick. That meant that unknown, to, unbeknownst to them, they had no symptoms, but they were infected when they were at Mass. And so they, we were able to go back and look at was there transmission in that setting. And there are absolutely no cases of transmission, which was very encouraging, meaning that our guidelines appear to be working and that the risk of transmission at mass when people are following those guidelines is very 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 low you can never say zero but it, it the transmission is greatly reduced well i want to add to your anecdotal evidence in our parish here in miami we are following all the guidelines that you mentioned and we're doing it very scrupulously our priest and and his assistant are very um very concerned that the mass not get shut down again it was a very sad time for all of us and we've had several i think at least three maybe even four daily mass goers who stopped going to mass suddenly 
and then we found out that they had become uh, ill with COVID. And none of us, in general, there has not been any transmission within the church that we can detect. And I think we would know because it, we're a pretty tight group. The, you know, daily churchgoers, we all know each other. We, we, we immediately know when someone's missing. And yeah. um, so anecdotally, I think you can add my parish to a list of successes. We're certainly being extremely careful. It's so great. And isn't it great how you guys look out for each other? I think that's so beautiful. I mean, that is our faith in action. And it really, to be honest with you, I I'm, find that so beautiful because the at this time, there's a lot of alienation. There's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. And people are not doing well. And being able to go to daily mass and look after each other in that small community is such a beautiful thing. That's so lovely. It is. And I'm very concerned, Doctor, because I know two people recently who've attempted suicide. One of them succeeded and the other one didn't, thank God. And um, that's pretty strong. I mean, it's pretty strange for me personally to know two people because suicide used to be more rare. It's becoming more common uh, with all the anxiety and depression that this um, that COVID and the lockdown are creating. And so I, I think that mass, all our religious worship, uh, whether it's mass or temple or um, any Christian ritual, has to be maintained if, if at all possible, because we need that. We need, we need to be connected to God and to each other. We can't just be um, so terribly isolated. I feel that we're, so many people are suffering so deeply. I, to- I totally agree with you. I think you're 100% correct. You know, I know one person who um, has difficulty going to Mass on Sundays, and he goes to Mass every Monday. Oh. And he said it's such a nice, personal, warm and experience for him. And he has the time to pray, and it means so much to him. So I think for folks that are nervous, too, they should maybe, in a, if it's, I know it's not what we're used to, but maybe they should start going to a, a daily Mass um, before they're comfortable going to a Sunday Mass. It's That's kind of a really good idea, Dr. Flanagan. I'm going to suggest that because I know some people that have been too afraid to go back to Sunday Mass, and I haven't thought to suggest the daily Mass, but that's a really good idea. Yeah. So go out and have a cup of coffee with people. Um, and even better, if you find a cafe that's outside or get a cup of coffee and go sit on a bench outside, mm-hmm. being outside is is a real antidote to this um, pandemic and the risk of transmission is always less and if you're having a cup of coffee you're sitting outside you're six feet apart you don't need to wear a mask and you can see each other's faces you can smile at each other you can laugh together and 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 share a cup of coffee together and that is we have to learn to be creative and do that so we'll we'll all have to do that after our our daily mass with each other because it's it's so key uh, you know, uh, obviously, as you say, the mass uh, has become a safe place. I, I've, I've also, I've, I've been going to mass, but I've also been going to um, shopping at the grocery store and at the pharmacy. I've been to Home Depot <laughs> for some house mm-hmm. things, and those places are all really crowded. And then when I go to the mass, which um, in some, in many jurisdictions, is still not open. Um, in fact, we're going to have later on in the show, we're going to have Archbishop Cordelion from San Francisco, who's trying to operate his parish under really draconian restrictions. So people are in some ways being exposed more at some of these things, which are essential things like grocery shopping and the pharmacy and not going, not being able to go to mass. Why do you think there is that discrepancy in, um, in the heads of the local jurisdictions who cancel out masses and another religious observance, but not 
some of these other areas? Yeah. So it it is early on in the epidemic. In March, the CDC published a couple of cases where there were outbreaks that occurred in church and worship services. It wasn't, wasn't mass, but it was before people were aware that coronavirus was present in the community. So there were no precautions taken, no special hand hygiene, no social distancing, no wearing masks. And in fact, one of the worst outbreaks, which in which there were a couple of deaths, um, involved more of a camp um, atmosphere where people were playing games together, eating together, hugging together, all good things. But unfortunately, it meant there was easy spread of the virus. So and there's also a very big outbreak that occurred in South Korea in a religious service of a of a non-Christian sect that I, I believe, uh, but where there was very, very close contact um, of all the people that were um, in very close physical contact with each other. So it suddenly became um, a headline that uh, worship services can spread the virus. So, you know, worship services can spread the virus. And then uh, so then when it came time to see if we could reopen, um, many jurisdictions, the ones that I'm most concerned about and been aware of, certainly it's Nevada and the city of San Francisco, just said, no, we're not going to allow it. And they, uh, unfortunately, I think part of this is they don't realize that worship and prayer is of huge public health and mental health benefit. And they see it as non-essential or a luxury of sorts. And it's very, very, very sad. I think there is also what I call animus. Animus really means I don't like you. Animus towards many people that um, that worship and certainly Christians. And um, therefore, they say, well, you know, I don't really like those people that much. And they spread the virus. And I don't think we should be allowing church worship. Now, they won't say that. But there's clearly no understanding of the public health benefits and that this is for the good of the people. And so we need to be able to gather just as much to the grocery store and get food. We need food for our souls. Now, this is a legitimate area where we need to really be heroic. And I am so impressed by Archbishop Cordelioni because he has said, no, we are, we're not going to allow you to tell us we cannot have mass. In San Francisco, they only allow outdoor mass with gatherings of 12. Now, they have a cathedral that seats over 2,000 people, <laughs> but they can't have 20 people within the cathedral. That, to me, is clearly a double standard. You can have 100 people in your Home Depot. You can have businesses that are open where people go in for an hour or two, and yet you can't go into a church and pray together safely this yeah. is unfair and a double standard so and limiting I'm, I'm limiting the outdoor uh, congregation to 12 is tiny imagine if you had to have a mass for 12 people at a time you'll never get around to giving everyone sunday mass well of course and you know there are there are other gatherings, um, rallies and protests that go on with hundreds and hundreds of people. And there, there, there's no, uh, that's, you know, um, tacitly um, permitted. It's not enforced. So I think it's wonderful that uh, Archbishop Cordelioni has said, well, we're going to get as many priests together and we're going to have mass. We're going we're gonna to follow the civil guidance for the time being. But, you know, at some point it's legitimate to say this, 
is um, unfair. Not only unfair, this is prohibiting what our people need. And many people would say, if I have to go to jail in order to go to mass, I will choose to go to mass. And if I go to jail, I will suffer that. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Christians have been choosing jail uh, <laughs> instead of giving up their faith. And it does seem, but you know, people who, those people who go out and they rally and they protest and they riot, they're not the same, sometimes not the same kind of people that, that, that go to church. People who go That's to church correct. and worship are people who, who want to do the right thing by their neighbor. They're more concerned with other people's safety than their own. I mean, people really want to, they don't want to be a vector of infection for someone um, who could lose their life because of because of an untoward uh, contact at church. So I'm really encouraged that, that uh, what I read in your study and in your review of all the different results across the, because there's over, how many, over a million masses I'm sure have been celebrated since the reopening. Correct. Correct. It's very, very, very encouraging. And and with the state and with the state of the media, I'm sure we would know very quickly if there was uh, any kind of transmission risk associated with with worship. I mean, I, I feel it would be blown up in the media as as we don't hear about transmission risks um, for rioting and protesting. You're absolutely right. We'd hear about it in two minutes. We'd hear about it very, very quickly. You got it. You know, we don't so have one, much. One question. Yeah. One question I have is how can we help um, the bishops in Nevada? How can we help um, Archbishop Cardellione? How can we, as Christians, show our solidarity and our care? Should we be. I, I mean, I don't know. Um, I think we have to bring it to the Lord in adoration. Do we need to fast? Do we need to. Um, I don't really know. I'm at a little bit of a loss, but I want to be able to help. Well, I think that your your piece that you wrote in Real Clear uh, Science is a great help because it's actual numbers, and hopefully it will get to them because they need to know that the mass is safe and that the mass is essential. You put those two things together, and they'll uh, hopefully they'll liberate our masses and they'll allow us to go back to worship in those places where these lockdowns have have stayed on and 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 really they're arbitrary and draconian when they target uh people of faith americans of faith so thank you so much dr flanagan for all the ways that you help us (laughs) at conversations with consequences and our listeners to understand coronavirus and the lockdown and how we can get better all together and help each other to to regain back our lives Thanks, Dr. Gracie. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. Stay tuned right here on EWTN Radio. We'll be right back. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we continue our look at coronavirus, seemingly a topic that is never exhausted these days. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Archbishop Cordelian. Hello, uh, thank you for having me on the show. 
Archbishop, I've been following your plight in San Francisco quite closely because I'm very interested in all the different ways that um, different localities in the United States, different local jurisdictions are reacting to coronavirus by very often um, arbitrarily shutting down religious services. And this is something that um, as a Catholic and really just a person of faith, it's affecting many millions of people in very detrimental ways. And I know that in, in San Francisco, in your particular city, the restrictions are very, very strong uh, ever since June when uh, you had a resurgence in cases. So what kind of restrictions are you facing in San Francisco? Well, first of all, I would um, uh, agree with your use of the word plight. <laughs> yes. like, like a plight here. Uh, I think to look it at from um, the city's point of view, they would say they're uh, consistently applying the standard right now. The county is in California. We have counties are on what they call a watch list. So it's the state puts them on a watch list. So there are more severe restrictions from the state. And then within that, the county has further uh, regulations. So being on the um, right now, San Francisco County is on the watch list, which means there can be no indoor gatherings. It can be outdoor gatherings, uh, but the county puts uh, the limit on the number if they want to, or, or or they can have no limit. So in San Francisco, the limit on outdoor gatherings is 12, um, which is practically yeah, not at all. Uh, now, the city would say this applies to everyone, not just to churches, for their worship services. However, all along, they have allowed the, the street protests to continue all these uh, very many weeks, and city and, and some have even participated in them. While uh, they have not been allowing us to have um, outdoor worship services, at least with more than 12 anyway, before the city went on the watch list, it was allowing indoor retail uh, up to 50% capacity. So I was trying to make the point that uh, there was some inequality here. Now, the city would say they're applying all religious denominations the same. But I would say we're not being treated the same as other similar activities because their position would be that in a store, people go in, they make the purchase, and they leave. There is a danger involved that uh, a large group of people are indoor in the same indoor space for an extended period of time. The virus uh, spreads more, and there's more of a danger of of infection. However, I pointed out that um, in, in a large retail outlet, people can easily spend over an hour and uh, the employees are inside all day long. Whereas uh, for us anyway, our church services, we can keep them to under an hour if necessary. We can keep doors and windows open for airflow. The people are stationary, so they're not moving around, getting within six feet of each other. And they're wearing masks. We can ensure that happens. So so a church can actually be a safer environment. So I, I have felt that it's been, been a double standard. I understand their principles, but I think the principle, and I agree with them, I think the principles have been unequally applied, though. And Archbishop, maybe the it comes down to the essence of what is essential and the inability of the council or, or whoever's applying these uh, specific restrictions in determining what's essential to Americans, to people, whether it's just as essential to have the ability to worship together and, and make those connections with God and with each other that is so um, important to our not just our spiritual health but even our mental health uh, there's a double problem uh 
with regard to the government deciding what is essential. This is uh, this is novel. This has never happened before. The government doesn't have any business telling people what is essential to mm-hmm. their life or not. The role of the government is to, in this regard, is to protect public health. So the government can issue, it's their duty to issue standards to uh, that people have to abide by to protect public health. And But it, not to say what's essential and what's not. If, if a business can abide by those principles, maybe it has to temporarily shutter. But uh, to say someone is essential and someone else is not is this is a huge government overstep. That's that's a very wrong approach. The second problem is that worship, <laughs> just like uh, assembling in public and freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, right? They're all First Amendment rights. So here we see the government is giving priority to activities that are not constitutionally protected over and above some First Amendment rights that are First Amendment constitutionally protected. I noticed that uh, Justice Alito made this argument in his dissenting opinion in the Calvary Chapel case out of Nevada when the Supreme Court denied an injunction to the church um, because the governor was allowing casinos to operate and bars, but was not allowing churches to have services indoors. Mm -hmm. And he made the the same point that uh, people don't have a First Amendment right to gamble in a casino, to go into a bar, I would say here, to make a purchase in side of a store. They do have a First Amendment right to worship, and, and the government has to respect that. Again, I recognize the role of the government to tell us what we have to do to protect public health. Here in San Francisco, this is where I also see a double standard. When the city, the first time, began to open up before we went back on this watch list, it asked the indoor retailers to submit a safety plan that they would approve, and then they could operate according to the safety plan. The city had asked religious uh, congregations back in May to submit a safety plan, and we submitted ours. I know others submitted theirs as well. And uh, and I, I hear they like it. It's, a, it's based on the guideline that came out from the Thomistic Institute uh, several months ago. So I know it's a good plan. It's a sound plan. Uh, but they haven't allowed us to operate in conformity with the plan. They haven't, they haven't formally, even though I hear they like it, the health officer himself told me directly that he spoke of it approvingly. They have not officially given uh, an approval for it so we can operate in accordance uh, with the safety plan. So this is where I see this, this double standard being applied. Indoor retail is not a First Amendment right. Uh, worship is. So I, I recognize, again, the role of the government to tell us what we have to do to keep people safe. I've often given this example of building a church building right? We build churches to building codes. The state, the the governing authority has the codes we have to build them to with lighted exit signs and panic bars here in California, uh, seismic uh, safety standards. And the building inspector comes to make sure they're in conformity with the building code. That's perfectly legitimate. It's, It's the role of the state. The state cannot tell us how to arrange the liturgical worship area, right? That's for the church to decide. It's a church it is a church matter, and the government stays out of that. So the same thing here. The government needs to tell us uh, what we have to do to ensure public safety when we worship. But those uh, 
guidelines that cannot be so overly restrictive as to effectively ban public worship. I noticed when I was reading over the guidelines and the businesses that are exempt from uh, these the guidelines and from being shut down, like the churches are, uh, the businesses that are exempt include uh, daycares, um, I think airlines, uh, factories, for instance, where people are are standing in, in, inside for hours at a time uh, working. And these are all considered essential, uh, but for some reason, church attendance is not. And yet, the Thomistic Institute guidelines have been proven by, uh, in retrospect, after over a million masses have been um, performed in the United States since the guidelines started to be uh, in use, uh, there have not been a single recorded case of a locus of infection taking place uh, during a, a, a mass. In a, in a Catholic church. In other words, no real documented transmission um, that, that we can put our finger on. And I think that we'd be able to do that. There's, there'd be so much scrutiny if suddenly in Catholic churches across the United States you had um, out, breakouts of infection. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the health officials keep citing that one case of the choir practice of the church in Seattle. That's right. Where um, so many of them became infected. But, I mean, that, that that's one case, and they weren't uh, observing the safety standards mm-hmm. they should have. So before this, this results of this study came out, I had... I had had a meeting with the mayor and the health officer here, along with the Greek Orthodox bishop here in San Francisco, because similar being a sacramental church, they're anxious to open up for worship. And I have three counties in my archdiocese. The other two were having services. One of them was having services indoors. His territory covers all the western states, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Arizona, some other states as well. And both of us know of no case of anyone having been affected from church services going on indoors. And again, given the broader area that he covers, that that's saying quite a bit. So even before that, uh, we already had, had a sense of this, but it doesn't seem to be convincing the government authorities. Was it this kind of uh, lack of understanding on the side of the government that prompted you to make your video, your video announcement that you released recently? In in part, in part, and it's also I'm listening to the um, the desires of the people that we do we do something kind of uh, very public, um, prophetic, but also just their desire to return to to worship. You know, twelve people at an outdoor mass is, isn't very much. We're used to large gatherings of people. You know, so we cannot have one large gathering of people. So I thought, well, why don't we have many? Smaller, smaller gatherings of people at the same time. Mm-hmm. So this is what uh, prompted this idea of having multiple masses on our Cathedral Plaza last weekend. We had both Saturday and Sunday. We're doing, we'll be doing it every Sunday now at nine o'clock. We did it on Saturday last week to honor the missionaries of charity on their feast day, who are very prominent here in the archdiocese. Oh, so you'll be so repeating this. Tw- you'll be repeating every week. Yeah, every then? Sunday now. Every Sunday at nine o'clock, we'll be doing multiple masses on the plaza. Hopefully, we can get twelve. 
to 14 uh, masses. We had 12 both Saturday and Sunday, so we had, I'm very thankful for the priests who have come to help, to help us out. So we had 12 masses going on at the same time on the Cathedral Plaza. Each group, the people, were there, it's marked, the people are six feet apart, and there's, you know, more than six feet apart, obviously way more than six feet between each of the groups. So we're, we're in conformity with the health order, but there's also a sense of a broader community being together. Um, and I preached the homily to everyone on the plaza, so I waited to make sure that all the other masses going on that they had finished the gospel, and then uh, we had a speaker system that was I was able to dress everyone on the plaza, and then we continued on. Each mass continued on its own. What a wonderful so it's, idea! It's a way of showing a, a public witness and giving a people a sense of being being gathered as the people who come together to worship God. If I can quote you back that's, from your that's video, your identity church, you know. Pardon? If I can quote you back from your video, you said, This is a way we can publicly manifest our faith and give expression to our faith in greater numbers so the world can be reminded of the importance of the centrality of God to our society. Every society that turns its back on God ends up falling mm -hmm. uh, because it's somehow or another it's based on a lie. So we, we very much need to reclaim God as the... The, the foundation of our country and uh, this is not endorsing any one religion over and above the others but it's acknowledging the primacy of God in our lives and respecting God's laws so this is a public way of, of proclaiming that you know what I like about your your inventiveness and the way you've you've been able to do this so publicly and in, in the beautiful plaza and I recommend to all our listeners to watch the video um, that we will we will tag on our show notes but what I really like about it is that part of the reason I think that uh, jurisdictions have been so quick to write off um, Americans religious needs is that sometimes religious Americans are are not too quick to demand what we need and what and how strongly we feel about it to show it how strongly we feel and I love that in San Francisco you are doing it in such a public way and and it's and it's cumbersome obviously to collect 12 um, priests and have 12 masses going on at the same time but it shows the fervent desire of the faithful to participate in that sacrament which is the central moment of the Christian life yes you know religious people for the most part were we're not the rebellious type. Uh, we're not the type that's going to be energized by coming together and protest and mm -hmm. shouting <laughs> slogans and all that. So uh, we, we're just kind of not in our DNA as it is with certain others, of people of other certain political persuasions as we see the protests going on now. So uh, I think that's why we perhaps may be a bit meek and and uh, making our voices heard. Yeah, we're... We well, our religious faith tells us we have to exercise responsible citizenship, which means being law-abiding. So, uh, so we try to go through the legal means to do that, and a number of pastors have filed uh, court cases, evangelical pastors. Um, some have succeeded or temporarily succeeded. Others have not. It's, it's very, to me, it's very worrisome um, that there hasn't been a, a clearer signal from the courts about the right of... Uh, uh, religious communities uh, to worship. So we, we do what we can, um, but we, we want to be law-abiding, so uh, we have to find these creative ways to 
to express our faith publicly. I saw a couple of videos um, on Twitter, and they, they reminded me of this. Of course, Catholics can't do this. I don't think we can do this. But there was an evangelical service uh, held in a Las Vegas casino with many, with many attendees, and they were very excited to be there. And I saw that video. That was interesting. I also saw uh, Protestants having a, a service in a Walmart because their own church was closed down. So I think that um, we, we need to, as religious Americans, show how important these things are to us and not just roll over and say, okay, the gamblers can go gamble, but we religious people have to stay home on Sundays when we'd rather be with our brothers and sisters. Now, in your homily, mm-hmm. Archbishop, you, you spoke so eloquently about uh, the Immaculate Heart. You said, we are referring to Mary's most intimate and unique being, center and source of her interior life, of her mind, of her memory, of her will, and love. And you were talking about consecrating ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Yes, that line I uh, took from the introduction for the, the volume of the Mass of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, that is in, in the introduction. Of course, it's, I knew, and it's well known about the biblical meaning of the heart. It's the most intimate part of the person. But I did have the great grace to uh, consecrate our archdiocese to the Immaculate Heart of Mary three years ago. It was on the, the feast day of uh, of Our Lady of the Rosary, and so it was close to the hundredth anniversary of the apparition at. Fatima, where she called for devotion to her Immaculate Heart. But I I keep emphasizing the need to live out the consecration, and that's why I pointed to Mother Teresa, who did that in her life. It has to be more than just a pleasant memory, an inspiring experience. We live it out through what Our Lady always calls us to do, prayer, especially the rosary, adoration of her son in the Blessed Sacrament, and fasting. And this is another thing that's been lost. We very seriously need to reclaim. We've lost a sense of doing penance, mm-hmm. and in particular a fasting. Friday is still a day of penance. Friday is a day of fasting, and so I'm asking our people to, to I mean, to fast seriously. Fasting traditionally means only one meal during the day. So I've asked my priests, and I've also asked the people to at least abstain from one meal on Friday and, and do more if they can. Uh, so we need to reclaim the sense sense of penance, of self-denial, of teaching us the lesson of of uniting our sacrifice with Christ's um, so we can open up the heart to God's graces. It's, it, it seems to me that this time of COVID where so many of us are laboring under so much anxiety, whether it's health anxiety or economic or even grief of all of so many people that have lost loved ones, that it, this is the only path to, to peace is, is penance and prayer and, and recommitting, um, recommitting to the only real source of, of hope that, that we can rely on. We are living in a culture, of course, people talk about this culture of narcissism. People are looking to themselves first. Uh, freely choosing self-denial through acts of penance, fasting and other acts of penance, help us to look beyond ourselves uh, and think of others first, and think first and foremost of God before all else. So I I agree with you totally. We need to, we need to reclaim this 
the spiritual discipline if we're going to have any hope of building peace in the world. It's God who builds the peace. We can be his agents that he uses if our hearts are open to him and our minds are turned to him. Well, Your Excellency, I can't believe we're at the end of our time here, but I can't thank you enough for taking time to join us today. And, and the strong witness that you are being for us all in the midst of adversity that we are facing as, as a people, as a Catholic people here in the U.S. So thank you so much, Archbishop. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for asking. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, in which we see a dramatic turnaround from what we considered a week ago. In last Sunday's Gospel, Jesus called Simon Peter the rock on whom I will build my church, promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Today, Jesus calls Simon, son of Jonah, not Peter, but Satan, and tells him, essentially, that the gates of hell are prevailing against him. Why does this happen? Because Peter was rejecting Jesus' words when Jesus said that he would suffer, be killed, and be raised. God forbid it, Lord, Peter shouted. This must never happen to you. We might think that this was just the concern of a friend trying to prevent Jesus from suffering harm, but Jesus the Lord saw something much deeper. The reason why he called him Satan was because Peter, at that moment, was, without realizing it, playing the part of Satan the tempter, effectively trying to steer him away from doing his father's will. The reason why Jesus said, get behind me, is because Peter was trying to lead Jesus rather than to follow Jesus. And no creature can ever do that to the Creator. No disciple can ever do that to the Master. Jesus was very directly summing up what was the cause of Peter's fall. He said, you are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. As challenging as that message was, Jesus then upped the ante. It was tough enough enough to accept the way God thinks, when that meant that Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter confessed him last week, was going to undergo great suffering and be crucified. But Jesus said that if we wanted to be his disciples, we too need to undergo the same. That's God's standards for us, too. If anyone wishes to become my disciple, Jesus tells us at the end of this Sunday's gospel, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Each of us is, and one to be ever better, a follower of Jesus. We want our friends and family members to be his disciples. But we cannot be his disciples, he tells us, unless we do what he indicates, deny ourselves rather than affirm ourselves, pick up our cross daily rather than run away from it, and follow Jesus rather than doing our own thing. This means thinking as Jesus thinks, willing as Jesus wills, choosing as Jesus chooses, serving as he serves, and loving as he loves. That's the challenge Jesus puts before us. 2,000 years after Jesus' crucifixion, we're not as shocked as St. Peter was when Jesus gave the first of three prophecies of what would happen to him on Good Friday, because we know that it turns out well on the third day. But most of us are still shocked when Jesus says that in order to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves, die to ourselves to the cross, and follow him along this path in order to live. And we're even more shocked when Jesus says that those we care about have to follow him along this path of suffering. 
we still are tempted to say, God forbid, Lord, that any such thing as pain and suffering, anything like the cross, happen to me or my loved ones. Because we struggle to think as God thinks, we're tempted to water down what Jesus says, our preconditions to being his follower. We think all Jesus is asking is to offer up daily contradictions and hardships. But his first listeners would never have missed what he was saying when he mentioned that the only way they could follow him is through denying themselves to the extent that they would pick up their cross. It would be as if Jesus said to us today, deny yourself and strap yourself into the electric chair. Because in the ancient world, the cross was used exclusively for gruesome capital punishment. For Jesus to say that they needed to pick up their cross and follow him meant that they needed to die to themselves on the cross, just like Jesus did on his. St. Paul, who picked up his cross every day after his conversion, followed the Lord Jesus, once wrote, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus wants us to be able to say the same thing. It's only when we have denied ourselves and affirmed God. It's only when we, in fact, have died to ourselves so that Christ may live. It's only when we've lost our life for the sake of Christ and his gospel that we will save our life and be able to follow Christ to the joyful risen existence he suffered and died to give us. This is certainly not man's wisdom, but it is God's. The worldly think that the cross is exclusively an evil to be eliminated in the pursuit of the maximization of pleasure and the minimization of pain. But a Christian looks at suffering not simply as pain, but as something that can redeem us and others. The world looks at the cross as a way of aggregation, of giving up good things, of losing out on good experiences. But a Christian sees it not so much as a path of renunciation and agony, but as a way to unleash love, to make us humble, inform us to be good Samaritans when we see others suffering. The way of the cross is fundamentally a yes, not a no. Just as by Jesus' stripes we were healed, so by our own stripes, our own crosses, we can make up what is lacking in Christ's suffering for the sake of his body, the church. Jesus' great teacher that he is sums up the contrast between God's wisdom and man's when he says, For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? So many in our day strive after money, power, pleasure, and prestige. Jesus is telling us that if we were to have all of these things in abundance and more, it wouldn't be worth it if in the process we squandered our soul. This is the great Faustian bargain, to use the image from the 19th century German poet Goethe, the quintessential temptation of the devil. Just as Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the desert when he took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, saying, all these I will give you, if only you fall down and worship me. So Satan tries to do the same with us. Jesus responds then as what he wants ours to be now. Away with you, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. That's the reason why Jesus called Peter Satan because Peter was tempting Jesus to put his physical health and temporal well-being ahead of his soul and eternal well-being, to live for the present rather than forever, just as Satan tried to do with Jesus in the desert. Jesus makes plain that it profits a person nothing to gain everything the world can offer if he forfeits his eternal life in exchange. Every time we go to Mass, God strengthens us in this calling. So we enter into his passion, death, and resurrection as we receive his body and blood that he offered on the cross for us. We are filled with him so that together with him on the inside, we can deny ourselves of things both bad and good, seize our cross each day, and follow Jesus all the way to the Father's eternal right. This Sunday is an occasion for us to ask Jesus, who has chosen us, given us the vocation to follow him, not to think as human beings do, but as God does to put that divine wisdom into practice and to give our life in sharing that path to life with our family members, friends, and the whole world. 
God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 